Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I talk with Celia Hodent, game user experience expert and former director of UX at Epic Games. We talk about adapting the game UX mindset, breaking down how players learn and retain information, and how players are motivated to return to the games that they're playing. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Pollen VC. Hypercasual is all about speed in its core, but payout delays from ad networks can make a huge difference in the ability to reinvest into UA and developer payouts. So we have been working with Poland DC to enable us to eliminate payment delays and optimize our finances. This has helped us to build a progressive publisher with fast payouts to our developers to bring more great hypercasual games to market. That was Alish Yakubov, CEO of Ducky a fast-growing, hyper-casual games publisher based in Moscow. Pollen VC provides credit facilities to fund UA spend, as well as a suite of free online financing modeling tools to help visualize ROAS, LTV, and cash flow. Visit pollen.vc to check out the tools and learn more about our non-dilutive financing to help you scale. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games, and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that elite game developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place, ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hi, Celia. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. It's great to be talking about this, this topic of Game UX. I, I think it's one of those areas where I was a lot involved in my previous studio. Yeah. Uh, that was two years ago when I stopped working there and I was spending basically the last two years doing a lot of helping out the UX folks at the company and also doing a lot of game user research. And I just, you know, last year actually started to kind of like bump into more of your work. And mm-hmm. I, I have to say it's really impressive and it's been really like a, a learning experience. I, I wish I would have <laughs> like looked at all of your material already five years ago, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, I do love yeah. to talk about game UX, so here we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hit good, me with your questions. <laughs> yes, let's do it. How did you get into the game industry in, back in the day and uh, and end up building a career in, in game UX? Yeah, uh, it's a little bit of a long story, so I'm going to try to cut it short, but... So I have a PhD in psychology. So I was I was not at all didn't have the intent to work in the game industry back in the day. 
but I did yeah. grow up with video games. I played a lot of games with my parents, including video games. So I grew up, you know, with this culture. And yeah. after I got my PhD, I was specialized in child development, so cognitive psychology with a specialty in child development. And I started to work in uh, toys and educational games for kids. And they they also had, so I was working at VTech and they also had some some little video games. They're very simple. But I enjoyed I enjoyed working on that. And there were a lot of so a lot of uh, parents that were already scared about video games. And I'm telling you that it was back in 2005 and where there were already some um, fear-mongering around games and concerns. So back in the day, it was more around violence and uh, our, maybe uh, our games isolating kids. And so this is when I started to look into the research on video games. I was like, okay, I'm coming from research. Is, is there some proper research about games or are people are just scared <laughs> because it's yeah. a new sort of new medium? And, and so I started to look into it and I saw there were like actually uh, quite a bit of research and so a lot about violence, but it was not really conclusive already back then. And there was also some research about the, the potential benefit of video games. So I started to write articles about that to explain to parents, you know, that's okay. You don't need to be afraid of video games. It's just, you know, a matter of course, if your kid is only playing video games all day long, that's never good to do just one thing. And of course we need to move. So uh, sitting all day long is not good either. But apart from that, you know, if your kid is having an, uh, you know, a healthy life and, and, and sleeping correctly and, and, you know, having a social life, there's no reason to be afraid of video games. So I started to communicate about that. And this is when I thought, well, maybe I could work in the video game industry because this is, you know, I, I like video games, it's fun. And there's a lot, you know, it's, it's the new big thing and a lot of people are concerned. And, and so I started to look for a job in the game industry. And at the same time, Ubisoft was looking for someone with a neuroscience or kind of science background to help them on, on a few stuff that they were working on. And so this is how I got in. Wow. <laughs> I tried to make amazing. it as short as I could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was really, really nice. Yeah, you were working with the Fortnite team building that game. Just want to do one off top, like off schedule topic with you. But I recently, we, we decided to give our nine year old a Fortnite for the first time. He's been like complaining for a year that everybody, every friend of his plays the game. And we were like, yeah. do we do it? And we actually see that because it isn't like, you know, it's not a graphically violent game per se. It's very realistic in a sense. Like, but I would say it's, it is actually a lot less like kind of addictive in a sense for, for a child in a, like, you know, you know, need to go back to, to beat your kind of like, the trophies that you lost in the last match. Like there's a lot of these kind of games that I think are more. Yeah. Tougher. So that's also the reason why it's important to think about the, the age. Uh, and that's the reason why we have ESRB in North America and Peggy in, in Europe. So the, these yeah. are not, you know, perfect, but it's also helping parents to decide, you know, what games are made for kids and what's in there. No, Fortnite was not made with a, a nine-year-old in mind. And so there's certainly some things that that would need to be rethought today, as given that so many young kids are playing. But yeah, yeah Fortnite is inclusive, so there's no gory violence or, or it's not too bad in terms of violence. And there's a lot yeah. of representation. And so all of, all of that is making it, that's the good part of the game but of course depending on the mode that your children is playing it's going to be different you know battle royale is very different from save the world which is very different from creative mode and so for kids you know creative mode is there's no problem at all you know you can just like hang out it's just like minecraft you can just like do stuff and be creative and hang out with your friends now battle royale can be a little bit frustrating for kids such a young age. So there's things that we need to, to we need to consider. But as mm. long as you play with your children, and you know, obviously you you like video games, so you're not you're not in that generational gap when you have parents that, that they don't know what to do with video games because they don't play them and they don't play with their friends and they don't uh, with their kids sorry and they don't ask their kids what they're doing. That is more of a concern for me when parents are not really looking at what their kids are playing. And sometimes, you know, parents are saying, well, my kid is playing Fortnite. Like, okay, what mode? And sometimes parents can't even tell me 
what mode mm-hmm. they're playing and who they're playing yeah. with. And it feels that's, sometimes that's that it. that because video games is not, I don't know, serious or it's not a, a, a acceptable way of playing, which is weird. You know, if your kids are playing football with their friends, you know, you would ask, you know, okay, so who won this time and who you play with? Mm-hmm. And so there's no reason we should treat video games differently. Um, mm-hmm. So there are things we need to be concerned, like uh, be careful of as a parent for sure, because kids have a tendency to to overdo things and to have a hard time to stop, but that's the nature of kids. They're, uh, they're still learning how to self-control. So that's the reason why they need the parents. But beyond that, you know, as long as you know what they're playing and what's the content in these, in these games, there's many things, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a game. <laughs> kids it like is. to, to play and to play games. And it's really important for, for their development. I think this is a it's a, a bigger topic that like we need to maybe cover in a future episode. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> but like, there's a lot to say yeah, about that for is, sure. <laughs> it, it is exactly, and it's it it is un, uncharted territory for a lot of people in even in game industry. As parents, we still are a bit like dumbfounded about like what should we do. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's not that far away from let's say the movie industry. If you were working in the movie industry, you would still let your children watch some movies, but not others. It's just the same. You know, some games are really adapted for for kids. Others, you know, it's, it's not that adapted. It's, it's up to the parents to define, you know, what what is what is okay, depending on the, the child and who they're playing with and the, the type of game. And that's the reason why we need more you know, like ESRB and, and PEGI system is, is a mm-hmm. good start to to help parents, you know, have this information that in, in the US you have the common sense media, which is great. And you know, it's it's exploring the different uh, games, for example, the different types of media to give uh, parents more information. So it's just this, you know, we need to get informed. I'm not a parent, but <laughs> if I were a parent, <laughs> I, would, yeah. I would, you know, stay informed and see and, and, and play with my kids to see what they're you know, what they're playing and, and watch also what they're watching so that, you know, I can discuss with them if they have questions and not leave them alone facing that. The problem is, is also that as our society, it's very stressful and we have less and less time to take care of, of children. And, and, and that's, that's a problem because the, the work is so intense and we need to be there all the time and to reply all the time when we get an email. So, that makes it really stressful for a lot of parents, and I totally and I totally get it. Oh. So that's yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's a very big <laughs> it umbrella, is very big. yeah, um, not necessarily issue, but concern that people have, and we certainly need to look into certain things, certain practices, you know, around the attention economy, and you know, the use of uh, dark patterns in certain cases. We certainly need to look into that and to, and to combat that and, you know, and, and, and to push back. But, you know, we can't throw the, the baby with the bathwater. There's you no know, games are great. There's a lot of uh, great things about games and, and we should not shy away from that either. I wanted to cover the, the topic of game UX a bit here with you. And with the, there must be some misconceptions with, with people <laughs> in the industry still about like, what say. is <laughs> Yeah, it's like yo. So you're an artist. You're a UX person. Can you can you draw this thing? Like we were like at Next Games contemplating to we put the UX people into the art teams, and it, it was like that was of course like eight years ago. I think the the industry has moved forward a lot from there. But like, why should game developers really care about UX in their their development? Well, you you should care about. UX because UX means what experience your players are going to have. So if you make a game, you should care about how players play them and what experience they have from that and what emotion are elicited from their interaction with the game. To me, so it's a weird. It's just like if you make a movie and you don't care about how people watch it and how you know what they understand from it, then of course. Video games as a form of art, there is many things that we want to do and, and we need uh, to have space for expressing our creativity, definitely. But then if you make a horror game and then your players are having, you know, laughing, this is not really the experience that you wanted for them. So caring about UX is caring about are your intentions the ones in the end really experienced by players? And if not, 
how can we correct the course and how can we stay on track during the development of the game? This is what UX means. It's just, it's not a thing in the process. It's not something that we do magically or whatever. It's, it's, it is a way of doing the process. It's a mindset. It's just shifting from our perspective as a creator and yeah. adopting the, the perspective of the end user, the players in our case, so that we can ensure that we offer them the experience that we wanted. Yeah. Now any, everybody should any, care about yeah. UX. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a believer, like a big one. For that. Like, <laughs> I'm preaching uh, to the choir. <laughs> yeah. Well, how could a game developer develop this kind of like UX mindset here that you're talking about? Sort of like yeah. having that perspective of the player. What should they yeah, think that's, about? That's a great question. And it's it's sometimes hard because there's a lot of misconception around UX and a lot of people believe, you know, that UX is going to impede their creativity or go against what they're trying to accomplish, which is actually not what we're doing. I think playtesting is a great way to have that uh, reckoning, <laughs> to have that moment of, oh, shit, you know, players are really not doing the things that I want that I wanted them to do or they're not really experiencing the game the way I intended and that that's is this is really a waking a wake up call in, in in some cases when you watch players you know when, when you know that, that these players are hardcore gamers and they're playing the type of games that you expect them to play if if they're coming to the game you don't see them understanding your game or or mm. that's really it's highly frustrating but it's also a very good wake up call so that's the reason why I, I like to do, you know, when, when I, I start working with the team and, and the team is, is not fully on board with UX, I, I start with the people who are on board and, and want to try stuff and we iterate with them and we play test and, you know, with a few iteration, even in some, something simple, we can show how this mindset will help the team accomplish their goal much faster and that's the way, you know, leading by example is to me the best way to try to do that so that we can show them, hey, you know, this is what we did. You know, the the, the team wanted to do that and there were some problems in the game. Players were not understanding, whatever. And we iterated a bunch of, of times and here we are. Now it's working and everybody's happy. And that did not take that long. So... That's typically <laughs> my yeah. go-to, but yeah. it's 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 really important to realize that an experience happens in people's minds, and mm. our minds, you know, our brain is limited, and players' brains are limited. Our brain is is limited, and and we just need to be at peace with that. <laughs> we are yeah. biased. We're biased humans, and yeah. that's okay. But we need to recognize that so we can move forward and and make better games and even a better society if we want to you know, yeah. go beyond video games yeah especially like gaming is is growing and growing and, and you have more people who know yeah gaming billions of gamers out there yes. billions yeah. in your talks and the material that you have online you talk about the gamer's brain like i think the breakdown was that you talk about perception attention and memory mm -hmm. as these key mental processes for the player for you know, learning the game and then retaining what they've learned and sort of like getting into the game so when you're working with game teams how do you break that down for the developers to understand what it means to have perception attention and memory sort of like having the game address those key mental yeah. processes so when i work with the team i actually don't use that <laughs> i use yeah. uh i use my breakdown uh usability and engagement with different guidelines the stuff that you're talking about is just to me to help people understand why we need these guidelines so these guidelines are coming from somewhere. It's not to annoy people. It's not to have guidelines just to have guidelines. It's to have process just to have a process and justify my, my job. We have these guidelines because the brain is limited, because perception is subjective. Uh, attentional resources are very scarce. We can't efficiently multitask the large majority of the time. And the memory is fallible. We forget a bunch of stuff and what we do remember is often altered because memory is a reconstruction of the mind. And so because of these limitations, we need guidelines so that we, we can ensure that we're going to 
develop a product, in our case, a game that is going to be adapted to human capability and limitations instead of asking the humans to adapt to the product. Now, in games, it's a bit different than tools because in tools, when we develop a tool, whether it is Zoom or Word or Maya, whatever tool it is you're developing, we remove all the the frictions because we want the users to be able to accomplish their goals. So we try, at least we try, (laughs) to remove Mm -hmm. all frictions so that the product is going to be as intuitively usable as possible. Now, for games... We are challenging players. We we do want, you know, there are things that it's going to be hard. It's going to, you're going to die. You're going to have to retry. You're going to have to strategize. So we don't remove all the frictions, but we remove all the frictions that are not by design. So if your game is about strategy, let's say like Fortnite, it's about building, fighting, exploring, harvesting. It's not about understanding icons. It's not about memorizing recipes, for example. You know, we can make the argument that maybe Minecraft as a component where they want people to explore and try to discover recipes, at least at the very beginning, and memorize them. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's part of the challenge of playing Minecraft. It is not part of the challenge of playing Fortnite. Uh, So for us, we're going to make sure that we give away, like give ways for players to not have to remember the recipes so they they can pin it on the HUD. They don't have to remember that. We need to make sure that things are clear so they can focus on exploring, on harvesting, crafting, building, and fighting. So that's the thing. I I forgot the question though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I I was, uh, but we have to I define think, what are the, yeah. the key elements to the to, of the game we're developing. And we use these guidelines. And the reason why I put an emphasis on perception, attention, and memory is because the human brain is limited and we have a tendency to forget about that. Not only we're limited, but on top of that, we are unaware of these limitations. And we believe we rem- we memorize things and this is how we end up fighting <laughs> with our spouse or at work because people tell you, I don't know, hey, you never sent me the email about whatever and you say yes i did and you're sure you did and you're like what is this dude telling me like i did send the email like it's it's like really and and then you verify too late and then you're like oh shit i actually thought i sent it but i did not and that happens to us all the time and even so we fail to recognize that we are biased So that's the reason why (laughs) we need to remember that perception is subjective, attention resources are scarce, and memory is fallible. Like then as you know what's going on in the player's head, then you start like adapting some of the the tools that UX can offer. Like you talk about the you already mentioned usability and engageability. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those? Like how do you apply those into games? Sure. So usability is, is a, a concept that's is very well known. It's been studied for decades. So we have you know very good guidelines for that. It's all about again making the the product of the game usable. So we're going to remove all the frictions. And again, for a game that are not by design, so we look at in games we're going to look at all signs and feedback. You know, are can players learn how to play the game without any tutorial text or whatever? Like, can they just like by looking at a character or looking at the environment design or looking at icons, can, can they get what's going on? And is there good feedback when they try something? Is there good feedback from the game so they can just experiment the game and learn from the experimentation with the game? Like a lot of players like to do that. But we mm-hmm. cannot, they can't get there if all the science and feedback in our game is not really polished. So it's really a lot about what we call the science and feedback. And are they consistent? Is it clear? Do we minimize their workload? Like for example, like I said, we don't want players in Fortnite to, rem- to have to remember recipes. So do we have ways to help them remember these recipes? Like we can pin that in the HUD. So we give away that information. So by doing that, we reduce their mental load. So there's all these things. Also, I uh, want to make sure that the game is accessible to players with disabilities. So we're going to remove all the barriers that should not be there and are not by design and not bringing anything to the gameplay so that we can be more inclusive. So it's all these concepts, and that's all about making the game usable. But like I was saying earlier, uh, a, a 
a game is not a tool. So a game, if we just focus on making it usable, it's not enough. A game can be usable and boring and you're not going to play it. So for games and even for tools, it's important to, for tools to be engaging. Like we can always talk about the, the iPhone versus uh, the BlackBerry. You know, iPhone was more engaging, more emotional to use. And so for the engagement part, that's not as studied as usability. And actually, engageability is a term that I made up, um, for lack of a better term. I could not find a, a term, and there's no consensus right now. Like Don Norman calls that emotional design. In games, you know, Raf Koster is going to talk about the theory of fun. And all these things are, are valid, of course. But um, I, I thought it, it was uh, complicated to use the term fun because a lot of people have different definitions for fun. And it's not about any, only emotion. It's also, it's also about are you motivated to play the game? So that's the reason why I ended up using that term engagement. And, and we're looking about the in ability of the game of being engaging. And for that, we look at motivation, emotion, and game flow in games. So motivation, our players motivated to play. And there are many types of motivation in humans, but we, and it's still very complicated. That's the thing that like we still don't understand why humans do the things they do for the most part. But we have like two main motivation that we, um, a lot of researchers have looked into, this extrinsic motivation. So the things we do, not for the pleasure of doing them, but in order to get something else. And intrinsic motivation, the thing we do for the pleasure of doing it. And intrinsic motivation is all about satisfying our, our innate needs for competence, autonomy, relatedness. And we can see like good games do that. You know, you feel competent, like you, you try and you die once, but then you go back and you get better. So you, you feel you're progressing. Autonomy is all about being able to express yourself. So a lot of games, you know, allow, allow, allow you to do that. You can change your skins, you can change your dance moves, but also there's many, in, in, a lot of games allow you to solve problems in different ways. This is what we call sandbox games, and sandbox games are pretty compelling. And relatedness, of course, is playing with others. So in games, it's mostly around competition, cooperation. But we can also see that just hanging out, like we can see that happening with Fortnite or Roblox and uh, many you know, uh, games like that, when you just hang out with your friends and you, and, and you just like get into space, and, and it's all about relatedness. So these are elements that can guide us and throughout, of course, after the game is shipped and if it's successful, we can say it's always easier in hindsight to say, oh, yeah, the game is successful because X, Y, and Z. But while we're developing the game, this is where it's tough. You know, what is missing in the game? If we ship with this problem, is this going to be the end of it? Or can we still recover from that? And so by using this process, it's helping us start to anticipate problems from happening and also prioritize, you know, what are we going to fix first? So that's the reason why focusing on usability, engageability, and have these guidelines that put together to to work with the uh, different teams. Let's say unravel <laughs> all, yeah. the, all the the you know the pile of problems that we have when we develop a game. Yeah, I guess that like leads into like talking about actually working in these teams. Like I've seen several game teams where UX is a part of the team, but sometimes there is a Know, either a separate UX team or a UX specialist working with several game teams. Mm -hmm. But from your experience, what is the difference there in applying these kind of methods into game development? <sighs> yeah, it's it's really tough. So first of all, again, UX should be the concern of everyone on the team because it's it's about making sure we offer the best experience possible and the one we intended to players. But then, you know, there are methodologies and and some knowledge that is our tools to help us get there. And so the UX people are doing this. They bring the tools and the knowledge so that everybody can get there. But we can't We can <laughs> uh, do that by ourselves. So having, we, you need UX people, especially UX designers. So these are the people mostly doing interaction design and information architecture, just to simplify. They're here to, um, so if, let's say the, the game designer is going to define the whys, you know, why why is this feature is going to be important? Why is this uh, system is important for the game? And what are the rules and, and all the, the uh, specs? But then the UX designer, they're going to define how. How are players going to interact with this? How are they going to understand how this works? And so if a system designer, for example, 
explains all, all the, the crafting system and, and how it's going to evolve. Well, the UX designer is going to make it work for players and make sure that they understand and where they need to go and what information are we going to show them where. And so you need UX designers, especially if you have a game with a lot of systems and, and a lot of interaction design and a lot of uh, UI design. Otherwise, you know, this is not going to work. But it's also useful to have a UX team that is outside of dev team just to have some more distance because it's always harder <laughs> to see things when you're super close to it. And typically, UX researchers are more separated because they need to stay as neutral as possible and, and not fall in love with the game because as soon as you do that, you're getting even more biased and then it's it's harder for you to do the research. So it's it's good to have UX researchers are part of the team if you have a big company uh, that typically have that, that have a mixed approach. You have a UX researcher as part of the team so that they can really understand what the team is trying to accomplish because UX research is about verifying if the players are experiencing the game as intended. And so it's important for the UX researcher to understand what was the intention at the beginning, because uh, otherwise, you know, we're not testing just for testing. We, we're testing against assumptions and against hypotheses. So it's, it's useful to have a UX researcher that is close to the team for that to make sure that everybody uh, is aligned. But it's also good for UX researchers, like at least the people who are really going to do the research with uh, user tests outside of the team to stay neutral as much as possible. Yeah. So, you know, uh, typically we're more getting into a mixed approach with UX uh, professionals within the team and also UX professionals outside the team. They can also coordinate because uh, it's important to help elaborate a UX strategy and UX strategy cannot happen without uh, executives, for example, and then, you know, we need to understand where we're we going and, and what are the values of the company and what we're trying to accomplish as a company and not just for the game project. So it's important yeah. to have both. And, and, you know, UX strategy is important to, to be like more um, uh, high level and make sure like everybody's aligned and coordinated. But then for tactical application, we need UX people within the teams and in the trenches. Otherwise, <laughs> this it's not going to work. This is a off-schedule question, but I, like I'm, I'm such a game user research geek that I wanted to ask you one <laughs> one specific like area that I, I didn't actually find any material that you were recovering this topic. But the the player goals are sort of like cause like I come from this industry where everything is live service games where you want to have people coming back for several years and you're building towards like long-term goals. Do you think the engageability area with self-determination theory as part of the motivation drivers, do you think about player goals as an area that you study or, or that you kind of like add into the games by looking at like all the autonomy relatedness and mm -hmm. uh, those aspects? What do you think? Yeah, so j just for clarity, self-determination theory is uh, the theory about intrinsic motivation, saying that we need to satisfy our needs for competence, autonomy, relatedness. Yeah, so there's different things. When we talk about player goals, sometimes we talk about more personality and player styles. And this is where it's getting even more complicated because the stuff that we mentioned earlier, intrinsic motivation, this is common to all humans. It's common to all humans that... We need to feel competent, we need to feel autonomous, and we need to feel some sort of affiliation and relatedness with others. But then some people care more about, or some people are more completionist than others, and some people really are more social than others. And this is more in the realm of personality. Oftentimes when we talk about player goals, a lot of people refer to these play styles that are different. Mm -hmm. Some people are more competitive and more people are more cooperative. This is even more complex because we <laughs> we don't have a good framework for that. So I'm not sure which part of the question you were yeah, uh, trying I to think, go to, but it's, I think it's, it's typically, yeah. yeah. So we need, if you want to be sure, you go with SDT, self-determination theory, and, and you try to make sure like people can grow. And so, of course, mm. people are going to come back and they feel they can grow and they can get better at something. That's going to work pretty much for everyone, uh, depending on the, what they care about in terms of growth, of course. 
But then if you're talking about player styles, then it's a whole different story. (laughs) Yeah, I think you mentioned completionism. That's probably one of the big motivators in in free-to-play. It has been exploited so much by, you know, collect all of these and then collect them in the next star ranking and then again Mm -hmm. and again and then beat all these levels and then beat them again with the, the, the better characters. And that drives long-term goal development really well for free-to-play games. Yeah, for some players, though. So all players, like, we all like to see ourselves progressing. So mm. uh, let's say if you steal a skill tree, uh, you don't necessarily want to, not everyone wants to buy everything, but they, we all like to see ourselves progressing towards our goals that we've determined. But now you have people, they really want to complete everything. And this is not the case for everyone. And that's why that's the reason why I was saying, you know, if you just focus on that importance of progression and to see ourselves progressing towards a, toward a goal and have some feedback on our growing competence, this is pretty much going to resonate for everyone. But now the completionism yeah. part of it is going to resonate to some people, but not others. But the completionist part, it's always, you know, if you have I don't know, if you need to fill 10 squares and you only have eight and then next time you have nine and next time you have 10, it's still, you know, not only you've completed the whole quest, but you also progress towards that goal. So that's the reason why sometimes it's it's a mixed approach. But yeah, not everybody is, is, is completionist. You have, some people have a stronger drive than others to to complete everything. One of these questions that I wanted to ask you about when you are advising a startup at this stage that they're making their first game, they're hiring their team, what kind of suggestions would you give to them? Or or perhaps like what kind of questions would you want to yeah. ask the studio before you kind of like help them out? Like yeah, it's, like? <laughs> it's really hard because it depends on where they are. First of all, in what we call the UX maturity. Yeah. So do they already know what UX is about? Or do they still believe that UX is a part of the process or UX is just UI? Uh, so I ask these types of questions first, you know, where I don't ask where you are, <laughs> the UX maturity. Yeah. but And typically a lot of people, for you, for them, UX is an afterthought because they, they don't think of UX as being the process itself. They think of UX, oh, well, I've heard about UX. UX seems trendy. Apparently, there was a cool UX process on Fortnite. Obviously, that seems interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so they're like, yeah, we let's let's have UX. And let's take that thing, um, the checklist. But that's not, that's not what UX is about. UX is a mindset. So I start to, yeah, I start to poke people and try to understand where where their mindset is, are they business-centric or human-centric? Because UX is about putting the human at the center. And the idea is because we're going to offer them the best experience possible, then we're going to be successful because they're going to be happy and they're going to come back because they're happy. Some people believe that UX is all about making people come back and and using some tricks to make them buy more. This is not at all (laughs) what UX is all about. This is having a business-centric mentality. So I start with that. I start by asking a bunch of questions and I start by asking them, you know, who who do you have right now? Like, who are your people? Do you have UX designers? Do you have UX strategists? Do you have UX researchers? Do you you already have a a UX pipeline thought through? Do Do you... are you going to do UX testing at some point or is it already all thought through and, and plan out as part of the production process? So that's the sort of questions I'm asking, you know, how serious you are about having yeah. a UX mindset. Do you have the, the people with the mm-hmm. correct tools? This is where I start and this is how I can make a overall assessment of where they're at in terms of UX maturity as, as a company, as a studio. And then I can see what's missing for them to get to the next stage. And if they're willing to, <laughs> of course, yeah. you know, not everyone is willing to, to have that mindset. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, mm. it's requiring some strong values and, and commitment. Do you feel that it is something that uh, like any game developer can adapt the, the UX mindset and hold on to that mindset without somebody who has the UX sort of hat on, you know, sitting next to them and 
do you change does it change people when they work on a project where they really are sort of like exposed to all the things that we just talked about yeah i think i i hope it does but you know first of all i don't i don't think you need a a, a formal ux background to have a ux mindset i, I would argue mm-hmm. that you know you can look at nintendo games and in in many ways in these games and many games you know they did very great things that showed a very player centric mindset that worked through iteration and and because i don't know open mindedness and empathy or whatever it is and and so having ux people there is just helping you formalize everything and go faster instead you know and and trying go through a trial and error process then all of a sudden you you, you know what works and why and why something works better than other and, and so it's just making things faster and so a lot of people already had that mindset but did not have it formalized and so it was harder for them to communicate with um, their teammates for example and for them you know having that ux formalization when i bring you know the the stuff about the brain and hey this is why this is not working as well as this because you know the brain is limited and and your option is actually making it easier for the brain because it's more adapted to the brain and then you know if if i show the framework with usability and engageability and the and the guidelines and all of a sudden like oh okay now i have a word for it and now it's mm-hmm. making things much faster for everyone. So, so the people already had that mindset and that that care for the player, they typically like, it's f- much faster for them to get on board and they immediately see the benefit of it because now they can label things and it's much easier to communicate with everyone because at the end of the day, communication is one of the most difficult things to do when we build a game because we need to all be mm-hmm. on the same page and, and to go in the same direction. So yeah. for these people, it changes in a way that it is just helping them label the things. And then the people who don't have that mentality, it's not always easy to to get them on the on the same page. They it, it's you know it's it, it's hard because at the end of the day, it's just a matter of perspective, and mm. it, it's you know we just need to make sure we all looking at the same things in the same way. But yeah. I would say Thanks. that it's yeah it's. Yeah, I've seen I've seen people not understanding, and then just by showing what this is all about, they they're more reassured. They're like, "Oh, oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, it's not you're not trying to redesign the game for me." I'm like, "No, I'm just <laughs> just trying to help you out to accomplish your goals." And you know, there's just are, are some tools and methodologies that are just gonna help you get there faster. So yeah, that's it's actually I love this moment when there's a click. And it's really great because this is when I'm like, yes, awesome. So we're all now working together to, you know, we're all in the same boat and we're all trying to accomplish the same goals. Final question before we go to the actual final questions. That I have. <laughs> uh, then you have the like, final, final question. Okay. Yes, yeah, that, that is going to be the last one. What do you think is hard about game UX? <laughs> to overcome the misconceptions about UX. It's it's still hard, you know. I've been doing this for nearly twelve years now, and, and first of all, when I started, it was not formalized. I did not use the term UX. I, I learned about it along the way, but it's just so many misconceptions. You know that UX is going to hamper the creativity of the team, is going to go against the design intentions, all the things that are actually not the case. Um, that UX is all about UI or that UX is something we can be done at some point in the process instead of thinking about it as being the process. And today, now we have a lot of people because of a lot of fear-mongering about technology and video games that they're forcing people for some reason to come back. And, and there are some people believe that UX is all about manipulating people to just make them stay longer on the platform and, and buy more. And so it's just constantly trying to remind everybody, no, we, we're here to help you out and we're here to put the human in the center. We're not, every time you consider business before the, the well-being and the, the, the interest of the players, you're not having a UX mindset anymore. You have a business mindset and so you're losing it. So yeah, it's, it's, that's, the, <laughs> that's yeah. the biggest challenge. Yeah. Sometimes it feels yeah. like I, I often use the, the movie Groundhog Day, because sometimes it really feels 
<laughs> we have to. Yeah. All right, let's let's take a step back and go through all it yeah. all again. <laughs> so that I guess can... that's what happens when the game industry suddenly like doubles in one year. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> getting any easier. Yeah, because then you know, of course, we are in capitalistic economy, and and so mm-hmm. people just want to make money, and they're they're rewarded for just making more money, and so all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. The yeah, art form is like, forgotten, mm. and and now we just see the money, which is, I think, it's really bad for our, for our industry because I, I believe a lot of yeah. people, game developers, are here because they're passionate about video games because they care about the art form more than just making. Yeah. Of course, it's always nice to be successful and make money because then you know that your game is is great. But yes. we, I don't yeah. think a lot of people are just here to to generate money we're here to create you know to, to try to design for an amazing experience that players are yeah. going to have and they're going to remember all their lives i think this is what we're in for right yeah totally yeah i was like waiting yeah. <laughs> right yeah. it is it is like i think okay. you know if you do everything right you can your players back tomorrow you can get them back a, a yeah. month later a year later this is what it it is all about uh, to actually create experience that people will love a lot longer than and when you didn't do these things all right now celia <laughs> final <laughs> questions okay <laughs> well, the real final question yes what is your favorite book and why I have a really hard time with these questions. Like your favorite, uh, the one I dread the most is the favorite video game. It's hard for me to just pick one, but I'll tell you the one that had the most impact in my life. And it, it's Thinking Fast and Slow from Daniel Kahneman, because this really ties it all. Because that's all about all of a sudden understanding that, oh my fucking God, like we are so biased. And and he with um, Amos Dursky, they for you know they did a lot of research on it they formalize it they 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 make us understand what this means for our society but also for ux because again if you want to offer the experience you want to offer you need to understand the biases that we have as developers you know we have all these biases like we have the curse of knowledge we know the game too well so it's really hard for us to anticipate how our new player is going to understand it we have the the confirmation bias we're gonna cling on to uh, just little piece of data that really confirming our preconception instead of looking at the big picture there's all these sort of things that make us as game developers <laughs> take make wrong decisions but also because of these biases and the way the brain works it's hard to accomplish our goals because players you know they they see what they want to see and they they take shortcuts and so, you know, in many ways, that book that helped me understand many things <laughs> about why it is so hard to accomplish anything, and you know, and and why most of the time when something successful, it's, it has a huge, it's coming a lot from luck, and and we tend to forget about that. So yeah, yeah that, I would say it was the most life changing. But I have many favorite books. <laughs> Yeah, that is a good one for sure. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? Uh, yeah, well, you know, probably my family because like my my parents because uh, in many ways, you know, I, I play I play games with them, and my dad is is colorblind, so I was very early on aware uh, of you know issues around accessibility and and why. It, it's so hard for, like, for example, like we when playing a game with my father, and sometimes it's just like colors, and you just read questions like oh, color blue, whatever. And my dad is like, <laughs> I don't yeah. know which one is is the blue one. So, and and every now and then you're like, oh fuck yeah, and and we forget about that, and it makes me mad that when when we have games where it's just relying on colors. And my mom is also, she, she's very impatient and she doesn't read, like she, she doesn't leave instructions. She's, and she's a very great example of, of a user tester, 
that, you know, they just want to accomplish their goals. They don't care about your product. They don't care about your game and what you're trying to do. They just want to have fun or they just want to accomplish their goals. And that was to me like a very, like both of my parents are very strong, you know, like that. My mom is like very impatient. Like if it doesn't work, she's like, oh, what is that shit? You know, <laughs> like a French person, like, oh, c'est la merde. <laughs> and my father, you know, uh, like uh, being confronted to these questions very early on, I guess that shaped a little bit my life because mm. I'm, I'm still thinking about that. And I'm still thinking, you know, would my mom be able to use that thing? <laughs> yeah. Would my father yeah. be able to uh, to know which question we're talking about? It's actually uh, somehow it's sad that we need to be close to these examples to to shape our lives. And, and, and we should not, you know, having empathy is all about it should not touch you personally to be aware about these things. And I wish we can find a way to to raise all these concerns and and to be aware of all these things without having to experience them personally. That's yeah, what that's I want good. to say. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good one. Good, good. That's the final question. Like, what is a like good the way third to... final yeah. question? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm 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 getting there. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to share your contact details. Uh, Celia, how, how do people reach out to you if, if they want to uh, have a chat with you? Because I, I think there's there's a lot yeah. of people in the audience who are curious about this. Sure. So it's very easy. I, I try to make it usable. So I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I have a website. That's just my name, celiahoden.com. If you want to contract me, the website is the best way to do that because I have a web form. And so you just like tell me what you, what you want. Then, if you need to, right. if you want to chat with me, uh, this one is starting to be a bit tough because I, I have a lot of uh, requests all, all the time, and, and I try to, I try really to do as the best I can, but it's, it's not always easy for me to find time, uh, especially right now because I have a lot of work to do. So most of the time is as would be in conferences, like online conferences, or you can just poke me on Twitter. Um, that that's the easiest way. If you want to just chat, we can try to find a way. Uh, but I also try to do uh, online Q and A sessions, uh, so that it's just easier for me to to do that and reach out to more people. So I guess that's the frustrating part for me. It's, it's getting hard for me to reply to people individually. But do, please, like if you have a specific problem, like do poke me. Uh, I also try to, so if you want to get into the game industry, you want to understand the UX roles, I did write a blog post for that because I was getting the same questions over and over again. So I wrote it all on my blog. So if you're interested in these questions, read this. And if you still have questions after reading this, please do contact me. Hey, Celia, <laughs> this was really fun. A lot of fun, I think. We need to do it at some point in the future again. Talk about yeah. The, the, the or maybe kids. we could do a live uh, session and then take questions from the audience. Mm, that would be fun. Yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> I'll do it at some point. Hey, uh, thanks so much. Uh, take care there and speak soon again. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Thanks. Bye bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening to us. And we have a weekly newsletter going out every Friday where I write the stuff that I'm curious about with startups and gaming. So check that out at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. And I will see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.